Welcome to another IFE podcast. Today's podcast is a Grand Challenge lecture given on April 6, 2018 by Mr Bill Ferris AC, the Chair of Innovation and Science Australia. In his lecture entitled Innovation Must Become the Core of National Priority Settings, Mr Ferris focuses on the imperative for Australia to up its game in the global innovation race. He discusses ISA's recently released strategic plan for Australia's innovation, science and research systems out to 2030 and explores the plan's vision, its recommendations and the next steps in driving the innovation agenda forward. It's a fascinating presentation and we hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon and welcome. Um, so welcome to the second QUT Institute of Future Environments Grand Challenge for 2018. My name is Carol Dickinson, I'm Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor here at QUT and I'm representing our Vice-Chancellor Margaret Scheel this afternoon who's unable to be here. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where we stand and meet today and acknowledge the important contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have always made to the QUT community. I acknowledge their leaders past, present and emerging and the continuing role that they play with us in the research and learning and teaching area. I'm delighted today to be introducing our distinguished lecturer, Mr Bill Ferris, AC, Chair of Innovation and Science Australia. Bill has a long history of support for innovation and ingenuity through his business career as a venture capitalist in the private equity sector. He has also been recognised nationally for his significant philanthropic contribution, especially in medical research, and is well known to the university and science sectors as a champion of innovation, education and research in national economic policy. As one of the reviewers of the R&D Tax Incentive, Australia's largest single expenditure in the innovation portfolio, Bill advocated for the introduction of a premium rate for companies collaborating with universities and other publicly funded research organisations to promote collaboration that evidence shows benefits business and research alike. Of ch as chair of ISA, Bill guided a major national conversation that you may have heard about throughout last year on the future of Australian innovation and science and research. This work culminated in the release in January of this year of Australia 2030, Prosperity Through Innovation, a national roadmap to help guide Australia to become a top-tier innovation nation by 2030. And Bill is here today to take us through that ISA vision for Australia and the plan to take us there. Will you please join me in welcoming Mr Bill Ferris. Uh, Carol, thank you for the introduction and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with all of you and a privilege to be at QUT. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and I join with Professor Dickinson in acknowledging the traditional owners on whose land we enjoy ourselves today and extend my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and at the outset, may I also acknowledge my colleague and fellow Innovation and Science Australia board member, Professor Bronwyn Harch. You can blame her for having to put up with me this afternoon. Bronwyn, thank you. Um, and uh, of course, you'll know that she's the executive director of QIT's Institute for Future Environments. And uh, it is clearly an institute that gets it about the power of collaboration, driving innovation for better solutions and with its focus on built, natural and digital environments, uh, it's in the right spot at the right time for Australia and, in, and has been in great hands. Let me just say uh, quickly about Innovation and Science Australia. It's an independent statutory board, a federal statutory board that was reinvigorated by the Prime Minister at the end of 2015 when he announced the National Innovation and Science Agenda. It's a board that I was asked to chair at that, from that time um, a couple of years ago and is comprised of basically innovation practitioners of one form or another, private venture capital guys, uh, small business execs, big business execs that started small like Atlassian 
um, and some academics and educators. It's a, a great mix of practitioners, really, looking at the, the, the basic challenge that was placed uh, on our desk a couple of years ago is how do we drive a better trajectory of innovation for this country? How do we get Australia to be truly an innovative, innovative nation and ranked accordingly? You know, what would success look like in 2030? We were given a horizon out to 2030 within which to develop a plan to, to, to consider that time frame. And um, our board's ambition and vision to guide the work was we wanted a, a country that was um, uh, respected, known and respected for the excellence of its research and its science and its commercialization. And, uh, and uh, a, a society and economy that was providing plentiful and meaningful jobs. So an inclusive and fair society was something, and a healthy one, uh, was, were, were the sort of adjectives we, 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 we worked around in coming up what, what would be the image we'd like to see. So this would be an economy less dependent on the incredible success we've had with our commodities exports and with the historical favourable terms of trade that's gone with those exports. Um, we want those to continue, obviously, but to be less dependent on that and way more dependent upon the development, commercialisation, translation of our own ideas, our own inventiveness, underpinning prosperity and forward progress. So we, to get there by 2.30, we've developed a set of recommendations in a, develop, in a plan, a national strategic plan, which we called Australia 230, Prosperity Through Innovation. It calls out five things to fix, five imperatives to tackle if we're to have a crack at getting into the top tier of innovation nations uh, and to close the considerable gap, frankly, in innovation performance, our innovation performance compared to our competitors in the OECD and other countries around the world. So we make, in tackling these five imperatives, which I'll briefly talk about, we make 30 recommendations to deal with those, and I'll speak to some of the more important ones of those today in the time that we have. So imperative number one um, <clears throat> is all about, we, we, we can't expect the nation to achieve its potential economic and social prosperity envisaged in our plan unless we're able to equip our kids to deal with the economy and society of 2030 with skills relevant to the jobs that will be needed by 2030. In our conversations around the ISA board, we sometimes referred to the, the education being the sort of setting the speed limit, if you will, for economic performance. And yet just at the time when Australia um, needs to accelerate this performance and raise its economic speed limit, we are actually falling behind our global peers, particularly in student performance in science, maths and literacy. Now, you'll probably have seen this slide before, but let me speak to it. It's a, it's a ripper. Um, you know, on the vertical axis, uh, we've got um, the spend per student. So the red curve is, is plotting beautiful trajectory uh, upwards, the spend per student, thank you Gonski, thank you government, etc. But all the other curves, the blue ones, the other ones heading south, are the curves that track our comparable performance on the PISA scales for science, maths, literacy. You couldn't get a worse set of graphs on one page and that we have to reverse. So our recommendations in this under this imperative about education, focus on changes necessary in secondary school curricula, quality of teaching, uh, and student performance. We focus on increasing teacher quality and, and training and equipping teachers and respecting teachers. Noting, for example, that 40% of teachers in maths teach in what they call out of field, that is to say with no formal training or background or uh, uh, actual time in their training on maths. 
And given that digital literacy will be just as important in future work as basic literacy and numeracy, we support increased emphasis on STEM subjects, not just STEM, but certainly we single out STEM, and have a recommendation about expanding the role uh, for the STEM Partnerships Forum, which is bringing together academia and industry to, um, to try and lift student awareness and understanding of why STEM's important, how it can be fun, and how relevant it is to so many careers ahead. The changing nature of work in the future means that reskilling and lifelong training and learning will be essential to establish a competitive workforce and to maintain a fair and inclusive society. And that's out to 2.30 and beyond. The plan therefore recognises and recommends the urgent need to restore and enhance the reputation and the capability of our vocational and education sector. That is absolutely a top priority. So let me move on then to imperative number two. Imperative number two is about uh, how do we, when we look at our competitors, we see much higher percentage of high, of high growth businesses driving jobs and innovation. How do we get more of those in our country driving productivity? The fact is Australian business simply isn't investing in innovation at the rate we see in other innovation countries. And more alarmingly, the trend in this investment has been falling since the global financial crisis. So this slide tracks in the um, blue line on the top, business expenditure in, in research and development. The great acronym is BIRD. I'll try not to use too many of these today, BIRD. And the other line is government investment in R&D. And you'll see that since GFC, they have both been in decline. Uh, especially the business one. So at the high point, business was spending 1.3% of GDP of gross domestic product in R&D, and that's fallen to about 1% currently. In that same year, the 1% year, countries like Israel are closer to 36 to 4% of GDP, and other perhaps even more better comps in a sense, without the sort of existential reality and driver for Israel, perhaps. Countries like Germany, the USA and others are more around the 2%. So, so we're, way be, we're well under where we think we need to get to. So reversing this trend is a top priority in our plan and our recommendations include changes to indirect tax and other direct incentives uh, to propel business investment in innovation and R&D. We needed to expand closer to that 2% mark by 2030, so double it as a percentage of GDP. So it's not going to be done by fiddling around the edges. To achieve the goal, our plan includes a number of recommendations aimed at encouraging startups and scale-ups. It includes improving design of existing R&D incentives. And uh, Carol referred to the RDTI, which is the big one, but other grants-based co-investment-based and, and direct incentives for, for business investment. And, to, and in doing so, to make sure we try to drive a bigger bang for the government's buck and to make sure they are really accessible to growth companies, big and small. So examples are helpful, I think. And I refer to a company called Textor, Melbourne-based. This was a company that was sort of struggling along as a small-time manufacturing company and then decided to work with CSIRO, the CSIRO, to come up with some novel fabrics, absorption fabrics uh, that would leapfrog what was available in the marketplace. And um, in doing so, they've come up with a, a shared patent position with CSIRO for a fabric that's in, adopted in nappies. Mightn't be that exciting a product, but they actually, when you get to them, they're very high-tech products. Um, amazing, really. And um, <clears throat> I visited this company recently, uh, just near Tullamarine. They completely uh, redid their manufacturing processes, uh, highly auto automated plant now, 
exporting to USA, parts of Asia and Russia, uh, and have contracts with the biggest nappy manufacturer in the world, Kimberly Clark. And they're making literally hundreds of millions of meters of this fabric every year. The important point though was for me, the employee base for all the automa automation has increased. The existing staff have been retrained. Additional people have been added. And of course, having competitive base of exports that are based on an innovative product with, with a, a, a very valuable global value chain uh, makes for sustainable jobs. So the old fear about innovation always means what's going to happen to my job, isn't it terrible? So politicians tiptoe around <clears throat> the subject or don't talk about innovation. I don't buy that. It is the only way forward for sustainable jobs. It is the only way to have an economy of the future. Anyway, Textor is a great example, Melbourne-based. We noted in our work the, the obvious imbalance in the incentive structures for business. So the reliance on indirect tax incentives, so the research and development tax incentive accounts for about 87% of all government um, subsidy stroke incentives for business. Um, and in the other countries that we're competing with, you get numbers like, for example, Sweden, Germany, Israel, zero reliance on RDTI. And so you read down this, this chart of comparable uh, competitors. So we're not saying kill the RDTI, we're saying over time, let's get a rebalance in how we, how we invest government money better. Because we've looked carefully at the RDTI and some of it's very effective and parts of it aren't. One of our key recommendations of where we'd like to see reallocation of the effort by government and these incentives is in facilitating exports. Exports are a very strong proxy for innovation behaviour. If you're competitive offshore, odds are you're pre doing pretty good things onshore and you probably are innovative in the way you do business and think about business. Intuitively, in my own experience as an investor, that's, that's the case. But on the evidence we've looked at in Austrade figures, it's interesting that roughly 50% of the existing small business participants in the Export Market Development Grant Scheme at least 50% of them are expanding at a at a CAGR, at, at, at an annually um, compounding rate of 20% per annum or higher in jobs growth and in and in sales. So hey, why not have a few more of those? Um, and yet this scheme has been compressed and cut and diced and, and pulled back. Uh, we're calling for the opposite. We're calling for it to be expanded. We want more small scale-up businesses in that. At the moment, the cap for a company to participate is uh, companies with a maximum of 50 million in sales. Okay, that's fine. The demand is way outstripping supply and we want to do more of it. I mean, you think about it really, we've got now 500 million or so consumer households in Asia going to over 1.2 billion by our 2030 horizon. We've got a couple of million of those households here. It's kind of like a no-brainer to give it a shot, you know, and try a bit harder. So there's lots of reasons, sort of intuitively, experiential-based, but also on the stats and evidence for doing more. I've got lots of company examples. I won't go into them today, but um, a further recommendation in this business industry propelling investment in R&D, etc., uh, relates to the fact that competing in the global innovation economy does require, always will require, access to the best talent possible, wherever it is. So, as a small part of the global community, we can't expect Australia to find all the talent and train up all the talent just ourselves domestically. Let's do heaps of it and do more of it, but we have to have an immigration policy that allows and encourages, actively encourages access to the, the talent we need for innovation to happen in academia, in business, 
not-for-profits, you name it, everywhere. So reducing immigration of such talent will lead to job destruction, not, you know, it can't help. If anything, highly skilled migrants, on all the evidence we look at, are job multipliers, and we, we need to not just say, yeah, it's okay if you come, we need to go out there and poach them. We need to be marketing to these people. Come to Australia, do this, look what we're doing. Look what Red Eye's doing in Brisbane. Come and join us. So anyway, we actually do welcome the very recent and commend the government's recent announcement of the Global Talent Scheme to stimulate talent attraction and skilled migration. Now, we and, and others have been pushing for this in the last couple of months following the recent, recent sort, of the, the, the sort of initial overstep in our view of trying to tighten up on these things. And uh, so we, 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 we commend their uh, reconsideration and we've got to keep pushing on this. So we're, stay tuned on that, stay active on it. Let's move though to the next imperative which is about um, government must become a catalyst for innovation. And it and be recognised as a global leader uh, in innovative service delivery. That's what we'd like to see happen. And we believe, as, as Innovation and Science Australia, that governments can and should make much greater strategic use of their role in the economy to stimulate innovation among small companies and high-growth firms in particular. So the plan recommends, among other things, that a 33% government procurement contracts target should be awarded to SMEs, another acronym, but you know what that one is, small and medium-sized enterprises. 33% uh, by 2022. It's currently running just above 20%. We've seen it. We believe that it can work to have somewhat arbitrary targets, but unless you have a target, you'll always get the rhetoric and you won't get the action and you won't get anything measured. So we're trying to push on that pretty hard. And we recommend other sorts of trialling and innovative new approaches like government as a first customer for, particularly for startups. You know, it's risky dealing with a small startup. But governments have got the chance to do some of that. So we, we're pushing for a, a trial program. Defence, of course, has a big time, huge potential to, um, to be a pathfinder for driving spillovers from major projects, including shipbuilding. Um, and our report pushes for even stronger efforts in this regard and endorses the recent Defence Science and Technology Group's uh, allocation. They've allocated 1.6 billion over the next 10 years in, 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 to deal with the innovation process with small companies, identifying and proving concepts for new solutions for defence. Yes, for defence, um, forces uh, usage, but also for uh, exports for industrial and or civil, other civil purposes, civic purposes. Of course, Australian governments and people in this room must see a fair bit of this too, are sitting on a stockpile of rich data assets and we need to get better and faster at making this high value data available, better curation thereof, and third-party use that can then harness big data to create new insights and services. Especially true, well, probably true in most industries, frankly, but especially true in transport, clearly healthcare uh, and education. And so we've recommended the government's forthcoming digital economy strategy paper, which is due to come out, maybe post-budget, I think, uh, should prioritise development of an advanced capability in this country in AI, in artificial intelligence. We've got a fair chunk of skills, somewhat disparately uh, spread around the country, but we, we see an opportunity to push that capability harder and faster and to ensure that we can remain globally competitive. All too often, the focus when you talk about government's role in, in innovation and R&D is, is usually about how can they invest more in supporting innovation rather than how they themselves innovate. So we landed on the thought the public, servant, public service 
Federal Public Service hasn't really been reviewed since Nugget Coombs back in the 1970s. You, you guys wouldn't be alive then, but I was. Um, he did a great job. Uh, and then a guy called David Block in the 80s, and basically nothing's happened since then in terms of a full-on review of how do you make that important public service fit for purpose looking forward. I, we're not saying that the public service is broke or not doing a, 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 you know, a credible job, but we are saying that unless they can lift the game in terms of understanding what innovation means and how disruption can be a good thing, not necessarily something you hide from and don't talk about, we need a public service with contemporary skills, broad experience and an open culture. We also need to rethink the way the public service is organised so public servants can work more effectively in cross-agency teams, rather than what we see a lot of, the current default model of policy um, and service silos. Um, such a public service could then be fit for purpose to drive greater innovation in a transformed digital economy. So we've called for a review of the Australian Government Public Service to enable a greater role and capability for innovation in policy development, in policy implementation and service delivery. If you look up our report, recommendation number 18. Somewhat controversial, but I think it's going to get there. The fourth imperative is about research. You remember I started by saying there are five big things we've got to fix. So we've talked about the education, we've talked about driving better productivity and innovation through better business incentives. We've talked about government, what it can do. The fourth one is about the research and development ecosystem, if you will. How do we get a big improvement in collaboration for translation and commercialization? So everybody in this room's heard about it, know we've measured it, we know about it, the fact that we're pretty darn good at knowledge creation, our universities rank, our collective record in, 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 in publications and citations thereof is, is fantastic, right up there in the top category. But the commercialization of that intellectual property and those new ideas uh, is not ranking in, in comparison with our competitors. So, and a big chunk of the reasons is the level of collaboration between business and researchers is also lagging our competitors. One metric that we track on that is what, what, how much is business or industry paying of higher education's or academics R&D spend? And it's, the answer is 5%, well below the OECD average and certainly way below the leading tier of countries. We need to quickly reduce the intellectual and physical gulfs between industry and research institutions. Otherwise, we'll never get this drive for commercialization. It's a lot better today than it was five years ago, way better than 10 years ago. Ian Watts' revision of block grants and how research will be allocated to universities is a big start on that. Never before has there been a requirement for industry engagement. I mentioned the RDTI before. The, that, that $3 billion program doesn't mention collaboration, doesn't require it, nor encourage it. We've just sort of gone, so should, no one should be surprised why we're not getting way more of this cross-collaboration work when you set up the basic drivers that do this. So what are we recommending to do about it? Well, certainly on the RDTI, Front, we, do, we have recommended a, uh, a premium uh, tax offset for the companies in that part of the program. That's greater than 20 million in sales, which is the smaller, smaller company part of the program. The bigger company part of the program, we want to get this premium offset up to encourage incremental spend with universities, publicly funded research organisations such as CSIRO, etc. And also to what would also qualify within that premium uh, offset would be uh, investment in PhDs, recruitment of PhDs. We've got this you know, great talent 
of PhD graduates. Australian business, another metric we, we, we track, uh, business basically employ, employs bugger all of them, you know, very low percentage of PhDs in the workforce, in the, in the industrial and, and business workforce compared to, we rank uh, down below 20th out of the 36 OECD countries on this measure. We need more businesses to reach out to universities and other instos, CIROs and medical research institutes, etc. And we need to ramp up the exchange among universities and businesses of such research students and business people. And we think the collaboration premium can, can, can play a big role in that. I guess a, another great example of an initiative that supports industry research collaboration, um, and I've just chosen a Brisbane-based one because we happen to be here, but uh, there are many around the country. This is a uh, cooperative research centre program, um, <clears throat> and this particular one is the Wound Management CRC. I was fascinated when I visited that CRC a couple of years ago, and I had no idea that it was set up to conduct you know, leading-edge collaborative research to improve the lives of people suffering from wounds. And, and um, chronic wounds are estimated to affect more than 430,000 Australians and, get this, cost the health system over close to $3 billion a year. Patients can suffer for years, longer than they need to, decades, and we could be avoiding a huge number of amputations you know, the impact of getting us right is really significant. Um, and there's sort of many causes of what's really a silent epidemic is that patients must navigate a complicated, fragmented system where not all health professionals use routine best practice to get the patient's wounds treated the way they need to be. So this Wound Innovation CRC was set up and, and in 2010, it's developed a wound innovations clinic, and, uh, which is applying technology now to transform the lives of Australian wound patients. And the clinic in Brisbane draws together a pool of specialists, uh, <coughs> accessible now to all Australians and all Australian wound uh, professionals via video conferencing facilities. I mention it because it's been a great collaboration of uh, business, including, wouldn't you know, QUT, uh, alongside uh, University of Western Australia, Curtin University of Tech, and 3M Australia, and the Aussie company Ego Pharmaceuticals. In addition, we've reaffirmed the need for government to establish long-term funding, secure long-term funding for national science and research infrastructure. Uh, the key foundation for any innovation system to really work. This is in accordance with the recommendations of the 216 National Research Infrastructure Roadmap that was uh, chaired, developed and chaired by uh, my colleague and Deputy Chair of Innovation Science Australia, the Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel. We've also recommended the government release an Australian Innovations Precinct statement to help shape the government's involvement in the emergence of local clusters of innovation around the country where appropriate, where, where you can really cite the need. The Geelong, my favourite example in a sense is the Geelong Future Economy Precinct because when the auto industry went pear-shaped for them, uh, they moved pretty quickly and in the last five or six years they've created over a thousand jobs um, in a sort of carbon fibre cluster of, of capability, anchored at Deakin University by companies like Carbon Revolution, um, Le Mans Composites, Clean Tech, um, which is carbon fibre filtration stuff, a um, couple of other companies. And Carbon Revolution, that company, is already selling, uh, it's making and selling carbon fibre wheels to the Ford uh, Mustang um, <coughs> output in North America and I've just learned they are also now supplying Ferrari. I don't know whether that affects many of you 
in this room. Doesn't affect me, but um, another indication, though, top of the mark, high value add, carbon fibre technology from Australia out to the world. Um, so let me move on to, um, in, a, in many ways, my favourite imperative to deal with, which is under the heading of culture and ambition. Um, I've had, as a private um, career in venture capital, I have had um, a career of investing in, in talented Australians in, in business and in not-for-profits. And I, and you know, I've, I've learned ability is not the handbrake on this country doing more. What I still see, though, is a big gap, and still a handbrake, is the gap between Australia and our leading innovation nations in the willingness and maybe the self-belief, but um, the willingness to, to tackle very big problems on a global scale. And to help build a culture that inspires Australian Australians of all sorts to take on some of the really big challenges and to proudly celebrate our great science and innovation. Um, this, you know, you know we, we, we took, a, the board took as a challenge, well, how do you, how do you impact that culture? How, how can we drive some different outcomes by 2030? And so we came up with, uh, with a program of national missions. Um, I'll, I want to talk about the Barrier Reef, but let me first talk about something else. I mean, we've had a tradition of big projects. For example, the Snowy Hydro Scheme, more recently the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, uh, and indeed, you know, the quantum computing um, ambition and project could turn out to be one such great mission, now headed in part by Michelle Simmons, our latest Australian of the Year. Um, but, but a new program of national missions could invigorate the public's excitement and imagination for science and innovation and inspire our best thinkers and entrepreneurs to solve some of our greatest challenges and opportunities. The first such national mission we've recommended is to use genomics and precision medicine to assist Australia becoming the healthiest nation on earth. A national mission, like a moonshot, like Kennedy's moonshot, it, they've got to be almost impossible to, 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 to be categorised as a national mission. But um, to get there, this would entail the expansion and integration of genomics and precision medicine into our, um, into our national health and medical system. It is a grand project. It, the mission would, inter alia, sequence the genomes of selected patient cohorts, including families with histories of cancer, children with rare diseases, people with chronic disease, etc., it would lead to better health. <coughs> it would lead to better health outcomes, new and earlier diagnosis, bigger emphasis on prevention, and more targeted and personalised care. And in doing so, we could become a world leader in intelligent, efficient, and cost-effective health delivery. If I had time, I'd walk through. Do I have time? How am I going, Bronwyn? Seven, seven or eight minutes. OK. Well, um, let me just talk. I, I used to chair, uh, until recently, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney for about a decade or so. And this, um, the Garvin Institute is trialling a program for sequencing the whole genomes, whole genome sequencing of individuals with rare conditions. It turns out that people, it's not so rare. If you add up all the rare diseases, it's like this huge number. We call them rare diseases because we don't know what the hell they, what's causing them, but there's lots of them. And in particular, unfortunately, in young kids. And a couple of years ago, a seven-year-old kid, Alan his name is, came into the Garvin with a rare blood disorder, was admitted to, was admitted to a trial. Uh, his condition had rapidly deteriorated and he was critically ill in hospital. Working through the weekend, the researchers at the Cancer Centre alongside, as part of the Garvin Institute, um, used his whole genome sequence to pinpoint the genetic variation responsible for his so-called rare condition. 
It allowed them to scan the medical literature over that weekend and find a new drug on trial in the USA to treat patients with this same variation. Alan, who was on the threshold of whether he was going to be around, was out of danger in a week. And within six months, he was well enough to go to school for the first time and able to ride a bike like other kids. I mean, these stories are, are, are fairly compelling. But it is an example. I think stories like this are a reminder that we actually do have a pretty good healthcare system. We all bitch about the queues and so on. But you compare it around the rest of the world, it's actually not too bad. And if you look at this graph, bit busy up there, but um, basically on the vertical uh, axis, we've got life expectancy. So you'll see Australia up there. It's roughly where we're around about 83 years of life expectancy. And on the horizontal curve, uh, line is the cost per, per person in the country. So we're roughly four and a half. We're less than 5,000 bucks a head, which is not too bad. We're actually ranking already, in, in other words, in the top six to 10 in the world. And so, um, you know, my view is, and the board's view is, you know, why not have a crack at being number one? To become the healthiest nation on the planet seems to be a, a challenge worth taking on, I'd reckon, and with benefits for all Australians. That's an important part of the mission. Enough on that one. Slide number five I've got coming up, which is uh, a bit of a, uh, a quick extract from Cosmos's latest magazine, but I, I was struck by this photograph. It looks like an aquarium, but it's on the reef. Um, and in Cosmos, it says, is this worth saving? When I was first talking about national missions at the board level, board members said, well, what would you come up with, Bill? And I said, well, you know, I'm reading all this. I, I, I've done a lot of diving over the years, and I've been up to the reef and further north, the, the ribbon reefs recently, and I was shocked at the change from when I'd been there a decade earlier. And I said, well, what about saving the reef, you know? Oh, yeah, well, that's, a, that's a bit of a silly idea. Who's, who the hell could do that? Well, we, we, we in the end, in, in talking with the people that know, not people that just think, of, you know, think they might know a bit like me, um, the people at, at the Australian Institute of Marine, Marine Scientists, um, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, the Marine Authority, the people like Terry Hughes, lots of Queenslanders, are really, and there's great controversy, but... What we learned was, from the sort of economics, apparently there's about 64,000 jobs that depend upon and benefit from the reef, and about six and a half billion bucks worth of revenue from tourism, domestic and international, etc. So that's a money thing. But way more compelling for most of us was this iconic reef looks like it's in big, big trouble. So far, the government, in its 2050 Great Barrier Reef plan, uh, has dealt with primarily direct dangers of crown of thorns damage and runoff damage from fertilisers, etc., from agriculture up and down the coast. They're, we should deal with those, and we should try and mitigate those problems. But it would seem in the last three years or more, you know, we may have lost up to 50%, some say more, uh, of coral by water warming and acidification of the water. Climate change, the big heading, it's not mentioned. I read the 2050 plan cover to cover and I could not find any reference to bleaching and climate change. Um, so we, we got exercised enough to say, look, we, let's, and, and, and in particular because people had spent a lot of time on this, said, look, you know, there are things we could think about in terms of restoration, adaptive measures that if one day the world does something about water, water temperatures, it's not just an Australian problem, obviously, we can't just solve that ourselves, but if we... Two things, if we can get there and water temperatures do stabilise and even come down, 
wouldn't it be great to be able to be in a position where we could restore and expand and, and save, in that sense, a big chunk, probably never again all of the reef. The reef will never be the same or as big. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could really do a big fix, though? Um, and, and then secondly, well, yeah, and also, you know, we live in a world where technology is really very exciting, and this is controversial, but some accelerated evolution, some assistance to the natural evolution of some of these species, there's 650 or something species of corals, and a number of them are resistant to thermal hardening. Uh, some of them are adapting over time if given a chance. Can you give them a chance? Can you encourage that? Can you, even if it's only a few, couple of hundred of those species, um, is it worth having a crack at that? And there are a lot more examples than, than just that. Well, in January, the Prime Minister, we were pleased to see, announced a $60 million reef investment package, which did include $6 million scoping of our major research and development phase of the mission. So a project definition, what can you do, what's credible, what isn't credible, let's zero in on that. So that's underway and is going to be led by, is led by the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences and the CSIRO. And they've partnered with the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, the Great Barrier Reef and Marine Park Authority, James Cook University, QUT, wouldn't you know it, and, uh, and that other university up the road, Bronwyn, called UQ, um, to implement the program, this, this project definition phase of the program. It would be a world first program in a collaboration of our nation's leading experts in reef ecology, water and land management, engineering and innovation, and the researchers are currently evaluating existing reef research technology in Australia and from Australia, as well as from the rest of the world, to identify what could be further developed and deployed at scale, ultimately at scale needed to protect and restore the GBR. The aim by 2.30 is to create a suite of targeted reef restoration and adaptation measures that can be modelled and deployed if and when the community decides intervention is needed and appropriate. This is not without controversy. Is this meddling with genetics? Are we trying to be God on the reef? I'd have a crack at that myself, but I think the social, you know, we, we, we're going to have to be very careful about licence to do this, and we are. But as someone said coming into this room, who are we talking to? It's funny how crisis is a great motivator for change and change of views, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. So next generation corals for tomorrow's reefs through selective breeding and related technologies might be part of this program. Coral bleaching is a global issue. The potential reef saving technology could also be commercialised for use in other coral reefs around the world, hundreds of them, and helping to cement Australia's international reputation for innovation and new technologies. Come to Australia, the healthiest country on the planet, have a look at the best damn reef you've ever heard of and we've helped restore it and save it. That's what I hope I'm old enough to see. I mean young enough yet to see it. These are precisely the sorts of outcomes and spillover benefits that national missions can create, taking on almost impossible challenges and demonstrating the potential of Australian innovation and science to make our world a better place. So in conclusion, with one minute to go, um, our report is, of course, ultimately is a report to government. We delivered it late last year, um, and its recommendations address all sectors of the economy and all of our citizenry. It is ultimately a plan for the sort of society and economy Australians want to live in and can aspire to by the year 2030. It's a plan to create more and better jobs, noting that fast-growing companies that innovate, export and scale are responsible for virtually all the new net jobs in this economy. And it is a plan to spread the benefits of innovation widely, including giving all Australians the benefits of, world, of a world-leading healthcare system. The report lays out a roadmap for government action for implementation of all 30 recommendations by 2022. 
just four years away, and for four yearly periodic assessments of progress. We as a board said, okay, we, we, we've got to stand by some metrics here that can be measured and we can be measured against if the government, in its wisdom, implements these recommendations. And we came up with 17 such metrics, which are outlined in the report, measuring ourselves primarily with our competitor countries on key, on key, um, on key metrics. But we have a long way to go. In only five of those 17 metrics today do we presently rank in the top quartile of nations. So we've got, a, we've got a big job ahead. Nonetheless, I believe our recommended suite of reforms and actions will enable Australia to extend its world record of 26, it's going on to 27 unbroken gross domestic product growth years, and indeed become a top tier nation by 230. We all need to be bold and ambition in our support of innovation as a way of life, as a way of life for Australians. It isn't seen that way yet. Innovation will be critical to the economic and social outcomes that produce the Australia of 2030 and accordingly, government innovation policy should occupy a prominent, a core role in our politics, in the broader discourse, and must become core of national priority settings. So please speak up. Your voices count. Budget's coming. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.